Warning, this podcast contains audio some listeners may find distressing. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Breaking news unfolding in Christchurch where there have been two separate shootings at two mosques. 28-year-old Brenton Tarrant charged with murder in the deadliest mass shooting in New Zealand history. Chillingly, as you can see, the gunman has taken to social media to broadcast this to the world. Maybe migrants to New Zealand. They may even be refugees here. They have chosen to make New Zealand their home and it is their home. There's a real sense of shock and horror how something so awful could strike the heart of this community. I think we're too laid back. Yeah. And the world has got bits more. Well, Brenton Tarrant flew under the radar for almost two years. Now police in New Zealand and Australia are looking through his background. They're desperate to work out if they could have prevented the deadly attack. In March of this year, 50 people were killed, with many more injured, in a terror attack on two mosques in the New Zealand city of Christchurch. The shooter, 28-year-old Brenton Tarrant, was charged with the murder. The gunman live-streamed the attack on social media, as well as sharing an 87-page anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim manifesto online. In the manifesto, Tarrant identifies himself as an eco-fascist. You're listening to Think Sustainability, and this episode is part one of a two-part series looking at the ideology of eco-fascism and its future. I'm Julia Karkatzel. So it's anti-Semitic, it's anti-Islamic, it's um, phobic on so many different levels, um, but it's self-justifying. On the basis of that ideology and a certain psychological construction, usually associated with narcissism, um, you can go out and kill people. This is Andrew Yakubovich, an emeritus professor in sociology at the University of Technology, Sydney. And he's helping me clarify who exactly an eco-fascist is. The eco-fascists see it as a battle between white people and everybody else. Or if it's not a battle between white people and everyone else, it's a battle by white people to keep everyone else out of their space. One of the sort of underlying sort of ideological elements in this is a thing called replacement theory or white extinction theory. The idea that um, there are people out there, usually Jews, who are strategizing to destroy white people by introducing Muslims into everywhere. And coloured Muslims will reproduce at an amazing rate and white people will be wiped out and then Jews will rule the world. Renaud Camus' book, The Great Replacement, and its ideology has been a rallying point for the far-right community since its release in 2011. But while nationalism and white supremacy are often associated with fascists, eco-fascism goes a step further focusing on preserving racial purity to save the planet. Eco-fascists place the well-being of the earth, nature and animals at the forefront of their ideology. In his manifesto, Tarrant spoke not only of the threat of invasion by immigrants, but spoke of environmentalism at the forefront of nationalism and described how skyrocketing birth rates could make life unsustainable. And the solution? to turn to the past, 
to ancient geographical roots to answer society's biggest problems. For eco-fascists, that starting point is Nazi Germany. The idea of blood and soil goes back a long way in human history. Um, and it was really given a sort of social ideological f uh, force in the late 19th century, mainly in, mainly but not only in German philosophy. There was a very strong sense that a place, a history and the people are sort of locked together and that only uh, the purest of the people from the place have the right to make the political and social decisions about that place. A lot of it's mystical with a sort of pseudo-fake uh, scientific overlay, but it, uh, it has sort of resurged um, in recent years, probably over the last 25 years, as um, global movements, populations have increased and um, people in particular societies have become more and more disturbed by newcomers who are apparently different from them moving into their space. And Nazi slogans of blood and soil and ideologies centred around racial purity weren't purely drawn from 19th century philosophy, but also from the eugenics movement in the United States. Hitler's early kind of eugenics laws in Germany were based on kind of model American eugenic laws. This is Betsy Hartman. I'm a professor emerita of development studies um, at uh, Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, USA. She spent quite a lot of time studying the far right movement. I've taught, written, spoken, done political work for my entire career on issues to do with population, the environment, and also the greening of hate, which is the uh, deployment of environmental arguments by far right interests. The eugenics movement, which was popular in the first half of the 20th century in the United States, aimed at improving the genetic composition of the human race using selective breeding. In the United States, with the eugenics movement um, at the turn of that century and then uh, in, into the 1900s, you had a variety of uh, people, like including President Teddy Roosevelt, um, uh, believing in kind of the purity of the race, of the white race. And this would also get kind of translated across to purity of nature and the kind of, and um, kind of uh, biological metaphors were constantly used in eugenics, of course, and, you know, uh, purity of the gene pool, purity of the blood. Despite eventually losing support and being challenged after the horrors of World War II, eugenics had already seeped into other fringes of society. You have its persistence in the States, uh, you know, versus till today, unfortunately, um, and it continued to, to um, have inroads into environmentalism and also into population um, uh, policies in the States from um, the early 1900s on. Just months after the Christchurch attack, in August 2019, a shooter opened fire in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, killing 22 people. The shooter's manifesto outlined his concerns about ecological destruction. He writes that the lifestyle of Americans is destroying the environment, causing burden on future generations. 
and described the impact of tonnes of waste from consumer culture and urban sprawl destroying millions of acres of land. His solution? To reduce the number of people in America using resources. So, on the one hand, you have this idea of purity, of those belonging to the land and having the right to make decisions about the land. But, on the other hand, eco-fascists claim not only their race, but their environmental management is superior. That the other, the immigrants, are causing environmental degradation. So the idea that the kind of poor peasants through their population pressure are destroying um, you know, the planet or destroying uh, land and the environment, which is a very kind of uh, popular misconception, I would say. I call it the degradation narrative, both in development circles and in environmental circles. And then that narrative goes on to say, well, once those poor people destroy their environments, they migrate elsewhere, where they also destroy the environment. I mean, there's no easy kind of uh, uh, population pressure on the environment equals ecological degradation. There's just no easy equation like that. You have to look at each instant and, and you have to look at which people are destroying the environment and why and how and what's happening to other people in those places. And I think you often find it's powerful extractive into industries or, you know, corporate agriculture who, who are doing the most devastation to the environment in many places or actually militaries. In the United States, the publication of The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich in 1963 similarly set back any environmental movements at the time. Ehrlich, a Stanford biology professor, predicted that overpopulation would fuel worldwide famine and global upheaval. If you read that first paragraph of Ehrlich's book, it's about going to Delhi and he feel, you know, he feels the feel of overpopulation when he's like it, um, with all these taxis and cars and people and crowds, you know, and he understands kind of viscerally what overpopulation means. And also, there's a racial dimension to it, of course, because where population growth was growing uh, the fastest was in countries of the global south, even though, you know, there was a bit of a population baby boom in the U.S. at that time, too. So it could stand in for um, fears of those dark people having too many babies, you know, and overpopulating the planet. The apocalyptic symbolism of the population bomb in the place of a nuclear bomb incited fears of the end of the world, fears that were already rife in the Cold War era in which the book was released. That global population was out of control and that soon influenced politics. Reducing population growth in poor countries became an essential element of US foreign policy. The overconsumption of the rich and corporate use of the planet's resources were excused as a heavy emphasis was placed on poor women's fertility as one of the leading causes of environmental degradation. 
you know, the idea that, that immigration levels should be kept um, stable so there's not overpopulation in the United States. Um, you, you get the immigrant thing kind of seeping in. Uh, Population Bomb really sees the imagination of many people in the environmental movement in the U.S. who were, you know, justifiably worried about environmental concerns like growing pollution, um, bad kinds of development, overconsumption. I mean, there, there were actual reasons to be concerned about the environment, but to then blame it all on overpopulation. It was a, it was a very... Um, it is, it was a very powerful discourse. As well as distracting from any real environmental policies at the time, the population bomb also cemented white supremacy and power in the environmental movement. Well, I think it was certainly a, a unfortunate diversion. I think there were serious environmentalists who got on with, um, you know, trying to clean up the environment at the same time. But it certainly directed a lot of the passion and the fear onto the so-called other, you know. It really kept out um, people of color from the environmental movement, at least from the mainstream environmental movement. Um, it really ignored what people of color were doing, um, what people were doing into in public health terms and uh, to clean up cities. It was a very much a white, um, it kept the mainstream environmental movement very white even though the population bomb and Ehrlich's ideas have been largely left to the dust, the manifestos published by eco-fascists draw on the same ideas. Sociologist Andrew says it's the skirting around any real attempt at combating our climate crisis and our most pressing environmental problems. How can I justify consuming so much of the world's resources living in the West? Uh, in a world where so many people are so impoverished and life is so difficult for the majority. Now, I can deal with this in a number of different ways. I can reduce my own uh, consumption of resources and try and ensure a much more equitable spread of resources around the world and try and ensure that people don't feel they have to generate so many babies in order to survive as a, as a family unit. Um, I can go and live in a, a more impoverished country and do what I can there to improve the quality of what's happening. Or I can say, look, my culture is actually better, purer, stronger, much more advanced. It must be defended right, against everybody else, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of trash out there, then all they will do is pollute. So let's keep it pure. Let's focus on what we do extremely well. Let's run our world as we want to run it. And um, we're at war. And uh, we'd be bloody stupid to let the, um, you know, the vandals at the gates through the gates. That's really the mindset. Right? And that's quite a wide mindset. And inside that, the sort of eco-fascists sit. <laughs> Those identifying as eco-fascists adorn their social media profiles with natural and mythological symbolism. On Twitter, accounts hailing mythological gods and goddesses, and memes like bees, not refugees, and photos of cottages in the woods, are all manifestations of the anti-multicultural, anti-Semitic, and white nationalistic beliefs 
eco-fascists share. So the idea of being saved is a very big, really big driver in the eco-fascist movement. <clears throat> Not because so much because of the Christian side of it, though some of them are Christians, um, but in fact most of them um, have a sort of um, Nordic mythological base. Um, you know, and you know, gods and all the rest of it. I think they're probably the main drivers of the audiences, for instance, for, for programs like um, you know, Game of Thrones and the Vikings and that sort of stuff. So these characters see the world as a battle. Right? The eco-fascists see it as a battle between white people and everybody else. And after enough momentum is built, there is action you'll see this dynamic building uh, and then and somebody will for some reason there'll be a breakout right? and someone will go okay enough talk let's act or there'll be people saying look you know we've been chatting about this let's do something but let's not talk about what we're going to do here because the powers that be will spot us so we'll do it offline in some other context um, but with people like for instance the Christchurch killer uh, there is a sort of messiah component. Right? I will save the world by acting. No one else is brave enough. There's a very uh, infamous um, alt-right piece of music from the early part of this, uh, this century that was sung by a couple of um, young American alt-right women. The chorus or the line goes something like, I'll bleed for you. Those who aren't brave enough to do it for themselves will do it for you. You're listening to Think Sustainability, and this episode is part one of a two-part series looking at the ideology of eco-fascism and its future. In part two, we look at how eco-fascism spreads online. Australia is probably the best place in the Western world to be an online racist. We look at how the climate crisis may be fueling eco-fascism. More extreme ideologies and philosophies will become more and more attractive the more difficult life gets. And how the ideology may be taken up by mainstream politicians. As it becomes increasingly difficult to deny that climate change is real, uh, this emerges as a, as a simple way to deal with the crisis without having to grapple with deep-seated structural changes. I think in the context of right-wing populism, we should be extremely worried about this. made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company. <laughs>